In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad The Shema is a daily part of the Jewish worship and has been in continual use by the Jewish people from Jesus' day and before through this very morning. A devout Jew will recite or chant it daily, and if they follow their custom of prayer diligently, they would say it two or three times a day. If you've ever seen Jews with the little boxes that are on their forehead and, and on their arms, they're called tefillins, uh, this verse is one that is inscribed, one of several that is inscribed on a piece of paper in them. The Shema is a bedrock teaching of what it means to be Jewish, what it means to be part of God's chosen people. The Shema is taken from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, and it is here that we as Christians find something that is rather familiar not because we have necessarily read all of Deuteronomy, but because its words are words that we have heard from Jesus. And it's what we have heard in our passage from Mark. So let's start at the beginning of today's lesson. A scribe comes up to Jesus while he is in the middle of a debate, and he is keenly aware that the answers Jesus is giving to the Pharisees the Herodians and the Sadducees earlier in the chapter fit in line with his thinking and understanding. Now, one thing we must remember is debate in the ancient world was not like our debate today. It was not a fight of wills, but a debate for the benefit of each person understanding the other position and either finding the truth in it or punching holes in the argument in an effort to correct, not to demean, the other debater. In some cases, rabbis would purposely take a view opposite to their own, to even simply weigh out the merits and the fallacies of their opponent's arguments. So when we say debate, don't picture our latest political debates on television, but instead picture two people having a thorough discussion, perhaps even with one playing the devil's advocate. Our scribe has been watching this session and is in awe of how Jesus is answering. And what he wants to do now is ask a question himself. Now, Torah... The law given to Moses holds 613 commandments. We know the first 10 rather well. They are our commandments, or our 10 commandments, or as our Jewish friends call them, the 10 words. The 613 commandments can be divided into positive commandments. You shall do this thing, of which there are 248, or negative commandments, thou shalt not do this thing, of which there are 365. Some of the debates centered not just on the interpretation of some of these commandments, but also whether they needed to be followed strictly 
the Jews use a word that would kind of resemble the word heavy, or less strictly, or lightly. And in this debate, there was always the lingering question that out of the 613 commandments, which one is the most important? Which one sums up the entirety of the law? Jesus' answer, beginning in Deuteronomy 6, is from Torah itself and was already something that every practicing Jew would know by heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And what a powerful statement and commandment and teaching is there in that simple set of words. But Jesus doesn't leave it as simple as that. Instead of giving one commandment out of the 613 points of law, Jesus extracts a second commandment. And this commandment is not focused on loving God, but instead on loving the neighbors, the people who are in your midst. Jesus dives back into the Torah and pulls out a second point of law. In Leviticus 19, you find this point of law deep within parts of the holiness code. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In giving us two commandments, Jesus is signaling us to remember that our love should be rendered supremely unto God. And part of living into that love of God is to love your neighbor, those around you, those whom you see today but may never see again, as well as to love your own self. The commandment implies that we too are love ourselves, not in some prideful, boastful, even egotistical way, but in a healthy way that acknowledges our status as beings created by a loving God who reflect that love like a mirror back to God. Simple enough, right? We are all experts in this three-way, three-fold way of love. Loving God first, loving our neighbors second, and loving ourselves third, right? Loving God is more than just mere words. Loving God is more than coming to the liturgy weekly. Loving God is more than just saying that you're a Christian. Loving God, like loving your spouse, your children, your friends, even your pets, is something that must be an active and engaged part of your life. 
and part of your life continually. It never ends. I love my mother. Always. I didn't decide at 10 o'clock this morning that I love her. It's just an ongoing, constant state of being. And the same with my friends, and even with some animals. Sometimes we say that love grows, but things only grow when they are nourished and cared for. We even talk about how we love our friends and our families who have died. And that way, love is constant and everlasting. And love is always the motive behind our actions. Sometimes we use, to, uh, use a word to talk about our actions that are unloving towards God and towards our neighbor. We call it sin. Sometimes we quote St. Paul when he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we relate it to an archer missing his mark on a target. He doesn't hit the bullseye, but instead his arrow is misplaced if it even reaches its intended goal at all. Recently, I was listening to a lecture by the former priest and seminary professor of St. Vladimir's Orthodox Seminary in New York, Father Alexander Schmemann who gave his students a more nuanced and a very clear picture of what sin truly is. Sin is a deviation of love. We deviate or divert our love away from God. We deviate or divert our love away from our neighbors. And when we do, we are deviating our love from God also. Instead of our love being focused on God and on everyone whom we meet, our deviation focuses that love back on our own selves, our appetites, our pridefulness, or perhaps to an idol that we pay tribute to. So let us think in these next few moments. And because it doesn't help to not be honest with ourselves, let us think deeply and honestly for a bit about where we find ourselves deviating our love away from God and away from our neighbors and even away from our own humanness as creatures of God. When, during this last week, did you consciously make the choice to not show your love of God or to God? It could be when you didn't read your scriptures for the day. Or decided to not give thanks for the meal you were eating because you were out in public.
Did you say your prayers? Perhaps you looked at your watch on Wednesday and said, well, I really should go to the midweek Eucharist, but I think I'd rather stay home. It could be that you left here last week, and until you realized it was Sunday today, you didn't give our blessed Lord another thought. What about your neighbors? When did you not love them? Was it honking out of anger at someone who cut you off on the highway? Did you mow your yard and make certain that you went right up to the edge of your property, but didn't help their neighbor cut their own grass, perhaps even one or two passes? Did someone hurt you and maybe even came and apologized to you, but you were unwilling to forgive them? Maybe you hurt someone and have refused to apologize yourself. And then there is yourself. How have you not loved yourself? We aren't talking about pride, but genuine love for you, even your body as it is, because God created it. Are you following your doctor's orders? Are you eating well? Are you exercising and staying active in proportion to your ability? If you need help with issues that trouble you, are you seeking the help and counsel of friends and family? Or even a professional counselor and therapist who can guide you through difficult days? You look at the mirror and say, Behold, God has created me, and rejoice in the person who you are. Or do you debate about what a wretched person you see reflecting back in the mirror? You see, the scribe got it in our gospel lesson. And he replies to Jesus with something that sounds strikingly similar to what Samuel told King Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. If you were to love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself, there would be no need to make sacrifices for sins. No need to make atonement. No need to pay a penalty or for a punishment to be dealt out. Now, we have focused a little bit on our sinful natures, on the ways we have deviated from love. Let's think about something else for a moment. What if everyone in this world right now began to love their neighbor as well as they love themselves? Or what if everyone loved God and wanted to show that love to someone else? 
I am convinced that every single problem that is driven by man in this world would cease overnight. Debts that crippled some countries would be forgiven. There would be no need to build more prisons. The situation in Hong Kong, Afghanistan, much of the African continent, the hostilities between the United States and Iran and the Taliban and others would become yesterday's news. Maintaining weapons around the world, particularly nuclear weapons, is crippling the world. This year, 2021, it is projected that the United States alone spent $60 billion just to maintain the weapons. And currently, the 10-year plan shows the United States spending $634 billion on the stockpile. As Dorothy Day once said, how much bread can that buy for the hungry? And just look at the Global G20 conference. The first thing we had to do was apologize to France for clumsily handling what? Not a food deal, not a humanitarian deal, but a submarine deal, another instrument of war deal with Australia. If we loved our neighbors and didn't live in fear, because that is what it is, pure fear, Imagine what we could do to not only help our citizens, but those in war-torn and famine-devastated regions. Even at the local level, healthcare, education, all the bureaucratic red tape that prevents people from getting the help they need, or even pulling themselves up out of poverty to a life of purpose and dignity. There is more than enough food in this world to feed everyone every day, yet so much of it is wasted, sometimes at our local grocery stores. Wouldn't love of neighbor in a Christ-like way solve that problem? And the church is global. We, the one holy, catholic, and apostolic church, the body of Christ, could actually make a difference if we sincerely, wholeheartedly, and faithfully remember to love the Lord our God, to love our neighbors, and to love ourselves. It would be like the day of Pentecost all over again. But it has to start somewhere. Why not have it start right here? Why not be apostles? Why not be evangelists? 
You know that evangelist is simply someone who shares the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his redemption of the world. Why not share this news that we say is life-changing? Why not bring your friends here to heaven's gate? Why not transform Portland and Gregory and Taft and Ingleside and Sinton and Mathis. Do you know what it takes? It takes love. We have to love ourselves into action. We have to love ourselves into being the body of Christ in the world. We have to love ourselves into taking our part in the redemption of and the sanctification of and the transforming of this old world into the new creation. And there's only one tool that will launch us forward. And it is to learn to love our blessed Lord and to demonstrate that love to the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.